Good morning, church. You know, I don't have to tell you guys what day it is looking out over the sea of jerseys and colors and sports teams. You guys already know it's the Super Bowl. And I don't have any fancy props. I don't have any curly hair things or air spray. You know, my eagles are not in the Super Bowl. However, the consolation that I do have is of the three teams, four teams, including Ron's Cowboys, who are represented up here today, only one has won the Super Bowl in the last 10 or 20 years. And I think, oh, that's right, that's the Eagles. Thank you. You know, if you're visiting us for the first time, we're 14 days into our 40-day series entitled Freedom. And this morning's lesson is entitled Freedom That Leads to Joy. Yeah, this is Super Bowl. There it is. This is my daughter on the right. She's the strawberry. Her name is Emily and her boo, Hunter, on the left, Hunter Hammer. This was taken at Halloween, and they are experiencing just pure out-of-this-world joy, getting to dress up, getting to be together, getting their own special Cheryl Hammer photo shoot in front of Ron and Cheryl's house. You know, I have a funny story to tell. So I was sitting with my daughter the other day. We were having dinner. And she look, you know, she sits on my left always. She's kind of at the end there in her high chair. And so my hand's on the table, and she looks, and she goes, Daddy, ring? Because she's my, my wedding ring. She goes, have it me? Which means I want to have it. And I go, no, honey, this is Daddy's special ring that Mommy gave Daddy. She goes, where's Emily's special ring? I said, well, honey, one day... A long time from now, there will be a boy who will give you a special ring. And she looks at me and she goes, Hunter, give me a ring. So I pick my jaw up off the floor. And I'm like baffled and, and I'm pretty excited and happy. And, you know, I love Hunter and we joke about them being, you know, they're going to get married one day all the time. And so my wife comes home and I'm just like, honey, you won't believe what Emily just said. And so I tell her the whole story and my wife is kind of looking down. She goes, we may have spent an hour yesterday initiating that conversation with her. I'm like, oh, all of my joy is gone. Like, it was a pre-scripted conversation. I thought it was so spontaneous. But it was, it was a really funny. It's just the funny things that kids say. Amen. You know, we've all experienced joy in our lives at different times, whether it was uh, the incredible time that you've spent with friends and family, memories and moments that you never wanted to end, the birth of a child, a major accomplishment, being accepted into a college or getting the job that you wanted, whatever it was, we've all experienced how joy feels, and know what that's like. But then the question comes, okay, how does God feel about our joy? What kind of joy does God want us to feel? Because the world offers a lot of different kinds of joy. There's the, I just bought the new Taylor Swift album, Joy. There's the, I just won the Super Bowl, Joy. And there's the, I'm not in the Super Bowl, but I'm not a Cowboys fan, Joy, at least. There's a lot of joy in life. But a lot of these joys are fleeting. Unfortunately, all of these joys will wear off at some point. A lot of joy can be turned 
when life continues to move forward or when life can take a turn, our joy, especially in things, can come to an end. And so we've got to ask, man, what kind of joy does God want us to have? And the reality is that God desires for us to have an unquenchable, never-ending, nonsensical, bulletproof joy that really acts as the baseline of your life. But this isn't a joy that can be bought or gifted. It doesn't come from material things or even fantastic accomplishments. This kind of joy can only come from God. And if we are to have a radical transformation in this area of our lives, if we're going to have a freedom that leads to joy, then we've got to see what God sees. You know, Paul writes the letter to the church in Philippi. And if you read that, it's one of, if not the most encouraging letter of the New Testament. Like if you read the book of Philippians, it is just overflowing with joy. It's overflowing with Paul's attitude and his gratefulness. And man, I can't believe this. this. Life is so good. All of these different things. And then you realize Paul wrote this letter while he was in prison. And you have to try to reconcile the fact like, okay, is he, is he faking it? Is he, was he just putting on a good act to the church while he was in prison to try to make them feel better? Like, how do we reconcile that he wrote such an incredibly encouraging letter from a place of such suffering? And the reality is, is all of us are familiar with joy. All of us are also familiar with the ultimate killjoy, and that's suffering. But we see Paul's attitude here in Philippians chapter 1 in verse 12. The Bible reads, Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. Right, Paul is sitting here explaining to the church that his being in prison is actually a good thing. And I wonder like how many people in the church were like really convinced of that. You know, they're they're trying to wrestle in their heads with how in the world is the greatest evangelist of our day being chained up in prison and not out there preaching a good thing for the church? Like how I don't Paul help me understand this because this is like one plus one equals five. I don't get it. But the reality is that Paul was looking at this situation, seeing it, and fighting to see it from God's perspective. Paul was looking at it and explaining, wow, you know, I'm here, the whole palace guard, it's clear to the guard, it's clear to everyone in here, the reason that I'm in chains. I've been chains because of Christ. You know, because of my chains, you guys are bold. Because in the worst case scenario, you get arrested and you get to come hang out with me. In prison, right? Paul is looking at this like I get to reach out to a whole different demographic of people than I would ever have been able to reach out to under normal circumstances if I would not been in prison. Now, I don't know about you guys, but I can be tempted to sit back and look at that attitude and go, wow, that's I mean, that's why he's Paul. I am not that way. That is that I don't look at things and see them from such an optimistic. I look and I go, wow, he must have, he had a really great series of quiet times. He was just spiritual out his ears. And that's how he was able to have such a great mentality. That's awesome. I am not that way. But Paul wasn't some sort of super Christian. And that's what gave him this incredible 
outlook. It was a choice that he had to make that I am going to choose to see my circumstances the way that God sees my circumstances. Suffering happens in life. Whether you decide to follow God or walk the way of the world, life is suffering. You're going to go through it one way or another. Whether that suffering comes in the form of relational conflict of some kind, whether it's with family members, your wife, your husband, your kids, your coworkers, relational conflict can lead to suffering. Whether it's hardship in your stage of life, maybe a painful situation physically with injury or disease, persecution at work or school, suffering just exists. And Satan loves to see us suffer. And we'll orchestrate suffering in our lives because he knows that how we process suffering can make us extremely vulnerable. You know, all suffering has this telescoping effect on our hearts and our minds. It narrows our view to to us and to a specific situation that we're dealing with in such a way that Even time seems to change. Have you ever gone and just had like the time of your life, whether it was at a party or you've gone to an amusement park or you've gone and seen your favorite movie in the theaters, whatever it was. And it's like three hours goes by like that. Like what? Come on. Can it just can we do that again? Can I just get another three hour movie? Can you just run that one back or can we just can you redo the game all over again? I would love to just watch it on repeat. Right. It it seems like. You just can't hold on to time. Like it goes so much faster than we want. And yet when you're hurting, physically or emotionally, it seems like time crawls. If you've ever spent any time in a hospital or any time with a cut on your finger or if you burn your hand for weeks in the shower, you, it's like it just hurts. And it seems to drag and drag and drag. And this is the effect of suffering. You know, the longer we're suffering through a challenge, the easier it is for our focus to become so narrowed in that it's hard to remember that you can pull your eye away and see the big picture. That it still exists. It's like still there. Right? We look and the world becomes the size of your eye hole, like this little quarter. And every situation gets filtered through this little tiny telescope instead of being able to take a step back and see what's really going on around us. In our suffering, we can forget that there's a bigger picture of God at work than we could possibly imagine. Especially in the midst. You know, you think of Paul and and what daily life could have been like. Okay, well, man, he was in a prison cell. It was cold and damp and stone. And there were times when he was probably chained to the guard just to make sure that he wasn't going to go anywhere. The guards were there watching him 24-7, making sure that he wasn't going to try to escape or try to kill himself before justice could be done. You're like, those are not great conditions. And yet, think of Paul. He's going, man, okay, well, I've got all this time on my hands. I could write some letters to encourage some people. Oh, there's a guard sitting right outside my door. You know what? I'm going to pray for that guy. And he's not going anywhere, so I'm going to pray out loud. And he's probably going to hear it. And I'm going to pray for him. And I'm going to pray for his family. I'm going to pray for all the guards. You know, this guy's going to see my life 24-7, so he's going to see me reading my scriptures. He's going to see me in prayer. He's going to see me wrestling. He's going to see me being gentle, and he's going to see me being obedient to the Lord. 
You think of, man, what better testimony could this guard have had than standing over Paul 24 hours a day for however long? I mean, that's an incredible way to look at your situation. To choose to see, man, God has me here for a reason. And God is still using me even in the midst of these circumstances. So I'm going to make the most of it and we're going to get this done. You start to wonder if Paul would have ever slowed down. Maybe God had to put him in prison just so he would write the letters. And what that perspective may have looked like later in life as Paul reflected on those years. It's incredible how we can look back on situations and see the bigger picture of what God is doing if we choose to. You know, Olivia and I, when we came to Santa Clarita, we were in rough shape. Her father had passed a a year earlier. We'd had Emily. The pregnancy was difficult. We were going through some relational issues. We were going through some spiritual issues. We felt pretty rough. Felt like that. Where it's just kind of a tangled mess. There's colors there and it's bright. There's bright spots, but it's just kind of all over the place. And I remember when we first came to Santa Clarita and we drove up in the moving truck and it was 115 degrees outside. I'm like, oh, this is different. And I remember the 45 people who were standing outside waiting for us to help us unload. And I remember our house being built, like dishes in the shelves, bed frame put together, our couch snapped off and put back together again, you know, in like two and a half hours. I remember what should have been an all-day move, and we're, Olivia and I are looking at each other like, do you want to go get dinner? Like, it's done. And I think of now all the people, as my daughter runs around in the fellowship, all the people that she wants to be held by. I think of when we're at home, all the people that she's asking about where they are, like Caleb Cho. She asks about Caleb Cho. Where's Caleb at? Caleb, tea party. Come on. Or where's Aunt Rachel? Where's Aunt Robin? She just asks for people. I think of the relationships that we have. I think of the memories we've been able to share together, the baptisms that we've been at, the camping trips, all of the things. And I look at this and I go, man, we could have never known, like building a tapestry, that if you're looking at the frayed edges, you're failing to see at different times the image that God is creating right in front of you. The thing that God has waiting in store that's so beautiful, that's so unexpected, that's so beyond what you could have imagined. Unless you choose to see what God sees. To focus on God and see what he's doing completely overwhelms sorrow and suffering. And that's not to say that you won't go through suffering or that somehow if you just put on a happy face, your suffering will come to an end. No, that's that's not it. That's not what the joy that God is talking about. God is talking about a joy that shields you as you move through suffering. A joy that runs behind the scenes, that keeps you focused on what God is doing as you move through. That gets you from one end of your suffering to the other in ways that you could never have expected. That grows you through things, that shows you things that God is doing in your life and in the lives of the people around you. That if you're looking through the telescope, you just won't see. And we see the fruit of this in Paul's life by the end of the letter. In Philippians chapter 4, 
in verse 21. In his final, kind of final greetings, he writes, Greet all God's people in Christ Jesus. The brothers and sisters who are with me, send greetings. All God's people here send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. That's right. But what does this tell us, man? Especially those who all of God's people that belong to Caesar's household, that there were disciples in the household among the guard because of Paul being there. That because of his life, because of the way that he chose to see the things that were going on, the way that he chose to act in light of what God was showing him, people became disciples, that there was incredible fruit for the church that was done there. It's amazing. And when we choose to see what God sees, we can free our minds to think how God thinks. You know, I found this. This is actually, this is online. These are, this is a cartoon from a Sunday school program for kids, which I thought, oh, that's kind of neat. But it's Acts chapter 5, when the disciples get flogged in the Sanhedrin. And I thought this was so cool, because if you read Acts chapter 5, if you'll turn there with me, Acts chapter 5, verse 40, and this takes place after Jesus has gone to heaven, right? The disciples are out there. They're preaching the good news. They get called into the Sanhedrin twice. The first time, the Jews are like, look, you've got to stop preaching Jesus' name. You've got to cut it out. And they're like, we will not stop. And they're like, well, you need to stop. And they're like, we won't. And they leave. And they get called in again. And this time, the Sanhedrin, they're just, they're going they're losing their minds over the fact that the disciples continue to preach and people are continuing to be baptized. And so there's some conversation in there. And finally, they just have the disciples flogged. In verse 40 of Acts chapter 5, it says, His speech persuaded them. They called the apostles in and had them flogged. Then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. It says, The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing. Because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name day after day in the temple courts and from house to house. They never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. And I love this picture because we don't know what that whole situation looked like. We know flogging was brutal. We know it was painful that you would have been severely injured. But I love that, that it shows them, you know, kind of walking out together with their, their clothes kind of hanging out, you know, and you wouldn't want it on your back because you got flogged and your back is injured and, and the skin there. And but they're walking out and they're kind of looking at each other and they're like smiling and laughing. It says they went away rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for Jesus' name. That is not just seeing the situation differently in the midst of your suffering, that's you look at suffering on a whole nother level. Like the idea of that has changed so completely in your thinking that you walk away pumped that God counted you worthy of suffering. You are thinking on a plane that only God thinks. You go, Chaz, how do I... How in the world can I change my mind like that? Like, how do I think the way that God thinks? You know, Aaron talked about this in his lesson about anger. 
you've got to train yourself. You've got to train yourself to be godly. You've got to train yourself with the word of God. You've got to train yourself, as Kevin talked about, through meditation of the scriptures, through meditation of God's character, through prayer. That not only are you seeing the bigger picture, but you're fighting to think through situations the way that God would think through these things. You know, it's no wonder looking at the apostles and the way that they handled this, it's no wonder the way Paul looks at suffering later when he becomes a disciple. Because they set a tone for the church by how they responded, by how they thought. Do you think they, they didn't go back to the church bleeding and, oh, guys, being a disciple, it's just, it's so hard. I don't know who can do it. You know, it's like, no, they went back. It says they were rejoicing. Everyone who would have seen them, guys, what happened to you? Man, we, it was awesome. You should have been there. I got flogged. It was great. Like, people who would have heard that have been like, I don't, I'm pretty glad I wasn't there. Like, but just the thinking of it, the way people's thought process would have changed hearing them talk about it. You know, how do people's thought processes change when we talk about our suffering? When you talk about the things that are going on in your life and the way that you're trying to overcome them with God, does that turn people on to the Word of God? Or does that make them think, man, I'm glad to not be you? Do we rejoice in our sufferings? You know, in 2 Corinthians 12, in verse 10, you know, Paul writes, That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. He says, I delight. Not I am okay with. Or I will deny myself because that's what God calls me to. He says, I delight in weakness, insult, hardship, persecution, and difficulty. Are we thinking the way that God thinks? In Philippians chapter 4, as we close out today, you know, Paul writes us in verse 4, a passage that sets the tone And sets a high bar for our lives and for our thinking. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything. But in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God and the peace of God which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. You know, when we can think the way that God thinks, we can learn to move through our sorrow to joy. We can learn to move through our suffering, through hardship, to a place where joy guards your mind, as he writes, guards your heart in Christ. That it's happening to you, it's happening around you, but it does not shake you. It does not shake the big picture of what God is still doing in your life. 
What he's still doing in your family, what he's still doing with your kids and at your job and at your home and in our city. That God's big picture can drive us through. That even in the midst of the personal things, the personal crises that we might be going through, that you can still dream and see and think about our future and what God has done in even those situations. And so as we go out today, as we continue for the, fighting for this freedom, that we can fight to see our lives, to see our city, to see those around us the way that God sees them, and that by training ourselves to be godly with God's word, we can think the way that God thinks. Amen? Amen. Amen.